Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you part one in a brand new series introducing a topic that's been requested over and over, going back to the day I began producing the CHP, 10 years ago in June 2010. Not only has the history of Xinjiang been requested many times by listeners, I even included this subject amongst the original long and rather comprehensive list of topics written down in one single stream of consciousness back when I had this idea to present Chinese history using this new podcast medium. The raison d'etre of this episode, and this whole series, in fact, covering the history of Xinjiang, is to offer you a brief general survey of that land and its history over the past several millennia. We've hardly mentioned Xinjiang in any of these CHP episodes, except, of course, in discussing the history of the Silk Road. And Xinjiang, well, the title of this series is a bit misleading, and I'd like to mention first and foremost that the term Xinjiang, which translates to new frontier or new borders, didn't even get coined until 1884, deep in the Qing dynasty. And in presenting this history, you know, this being the China History Podcast and all, I'm going to focus on this history as it related to China. Over thousands of years, going back to the Qin Dynasty, China has flitted in and out of the history of Xinjiang. From about the 3rd century BCE until the Tang Dynasty, Xinjiang was referred to as Xiyu, the western regions. West of what? West of the Yumen, the Jade Gate built during the western Han Emperor Wu's long reign. That was the end of the road as far as as far as China went. And it was called the Jade Gate because of all that nephrite jade from Khotan that passed through this gate on its way to the Imperial Palace and other jade markets in China. Khotan is one of the bigger and more important oasis kingdoms we'll look at later on in Part 4 and in other episodes. Chinese, and of course others, had a prehistoric love affair with this ornamental mineral. And though you could get jade in China, the good stuff came from Xinjiang, from the kingdom of Khotan, Hetian in Mandarin. They carved it out of the Kunlun Mountains that acted as a picture-perfect postcard backdrop to that kingdom. The Yumen, the Jade Gate, was located about 50 miles west of Dunhuang in westernmost Gansu province and 1,200 miles from Khotan. So I wish to emphasize again that it's strictly for convenience sake that throughout this series... I'll be referring to this land that today makes up a big part of China's northwest quadrant by its modern name, Xinjiang, rather than Eastern Central Asia or any other names. I hope you don't mind. But do keep in mind the term Xinjiang, it's only been used for the past 136 years. Less than half a percent of a history that goes back 4,000 years. I'm only going to take this history up to 1911, not because I want to avoid getting on the CCP's bad side. There's nothing to do with that. I'm going to try and squeeze several thousand years of action-packed history into hopefully no more than 10 episodes, 12 most. Beyond that, I think there's probably at least another 10 episodes worth of modern Xinjiang history, including the present day. So this history is still being written as we speak. We'll come back and revisit this subject of modern Xinjiang another day, if I live that long. This is quite a history. 
Central Asia this time. These are lands that perhaps most of us will never visit in our lifetime. In popular world history, as it's taught in schools, very little is known about this history and its importance. Marshall Poe's New Books in Asia Network has a show on new books in Central Asian studies. But if you search for Central Asia and all the podcast apps, there's not much. We all know about Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire from books, podcasts, or the 1956 John Wayne movie. But outside of this iconic icon from history, who else from Central Asia rings a bell? Tamerlane? Who else? In all these once great and vanished kingdoms and empires in today's Afghanistan, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Russia, and of course in Xinjiang, this history too. It's not taught in too many middle schools and high schools. And how many students take those courses in their colleges and universities? Can't be anywhere near the interest given to the more popularly studied histories. So while the focus of this series will be on Xinjiang and Xinjiang's impact on China, because of Xinjiang's geographic centrality, everything was tied together with everything else that happened in between the markets in ancient Shanxi province and the empires of Rome, Persia, and every small and great Central Asian kingdom in between. Today in this episode, we're going to look back at that time when the world became small enough where a human lost their fare of picking up and wandering a thousand miles to see what was out there. This is when it first happened, when human beings who had marked differences in their physical appearance, their dress, language, of course, when they first ran into each other. And the main thing I hope you take away from this series is that Xinjiang, this particular piece of Central Asia, was the center of it all. To the west of Xinjiang were all the Central Asian kingdoms and empires that stretched all the way to the eastern Mediterranean Sea. And beyond that point, too, to Europe, most famously ancient Rome. And to Xinjiang's east? No, that was easy. Xinjiang was the gateway to China. The Hexi Corridor was this 750-mile-long pathway that connected Xinjiang to Gansu. Back then, Gansu province in the west was as far as the ancient Chinese would willingly or even unwillingly go. Xinjiang was to people of that age what the Wild West was to Americans in the time of the founding fathers in the late 18th century. No one knew much about it, and even fewer would risk their lives going there. Just like the 18th and 19th century European traders who saw China as a source of some of the most amazing products, the same could be said for traders from BCE times who, once they got a load of China's big three commodities, tea, silk, porcelain, they just had to have it. And in order to get to China in those earliest of times, you had to pass through Xinjiang. There was no other way. This early in human development the sea was not an option. Still, too scary for most. The Himalayas blocked your way from the south, and in the north, same thing. Endless, impassable mountain chains and deserts. And though well-beaten paths that became known as the Silk Roads had slowly developed over the decades and centuries that facilitated trade, it was still something fraught with dangers that came in a multitude of different forms. 
I considered myself quite fortunate to have a few giants whose broad shoulders I was lucky to stand on while studying this topic. Victor Mare, the downright venerable professor of Chinese language and literature at the University of Pennsylvania, an institution founded during the Qianlong era in 1740 by the man on the $100 bill, Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Victor Mayer and many of his colleagues did a lot of work with the Tarim mummies that we're going to get to in this episode. If I start rattling off all the honors, achievements, and accolades Professor Mayer has accumulated since the 1970s, it'll take us clear through to part three of this series. Victor Mayer, J.P. Mallory, I will list as many sources as possible in the show notes throughout this series. As far as books on this subject in the English language, You can do a lot worse than these respected big names in this Indo-European, Central Asian history and linguistics. And no less a person than Josh Summers of FarWestChina.com, formerly of Xinjiang. He was the one who was kind enough to insist I get my hands on a copy of James A. Millward's Eurasian Crossroads, A History of Xinjiang. There'll be a bunch of links uh, in the show notes to these and other sources worth checking out. For a lot of things that happened only 200 years ago, historians are still racking their brains trying to figure so much out. The further back in time you go, the foggier things get. Recorded history for the Chinese civilization that emerged along the Yellow River began during the second millennium BCE, some 35 centuries ago. But when you go back even farther than that, third and fourth millennium before the Common Era, well... It's like CSI Xinjiang, forensic archaeology, forensic anthropology. It's like one massive crime scene. And all these amazing scientists and scholars going back to the time of Sven Hedin and Volker Bergman and so many others have been trying to put all the pieces together and learn more about what actually happened there. Archaeologists, anthropologists, and these clever, clever people who know how to perform linguistic reconstruction, molecular anthropology research, DNA analysis down to the mitochondrial level, historic reconstruction, scientists who perform genetic experiments on ancient relics and human remains, and all kinds of brilliant people. Historians, too, using all the latest technologies of our day, have come up with some interesting theories about where we all came from. You know, a lot of people think there wasn't a lot of mobility from east to west and vice versa until Han Wu Di and the Silk Road of the 2nd century BCE. Actually, north of Xinjiang, stretching from northeast China into Mongolia, Russia, Kazakhstan, all the way to Hungary and Romania, was the Great Eurasian Steppe. These grasslands were the first pathways that human civilization began utilizing to pass from east to west and west to east. These grasslands, they weren't like the pitch at Old Trafford, they passed through some of the most desolate parts of Central Asia. But it was a path that existed, and it was easier to traverse than mountains and deserts. If you go on Google Earth and zoom out far enough so that the entirety of the Asian continent fills your screen, you'll see this one rugby ball-shaped area, like Jupiter's red spot that just stands out when looking at the entire Eurasian landmass. You can't not see it. That's the Tarim Basin. A basin is a hollow or a depression in the Earth's surface, wholly or partly surrounded by higher land. 
you could pack the entirety of Egypt inside the Tyrant Basin with a little room to spare. You could take all the square footage of Texas and New Mexico, two pretty big states, would you agree? Second and fifth largest in the nation. Fits nicely inside. The Tarim Basin, as my president says, it's huge. And right in the center of that rugby ball-shaped basin is the Taklamakan Desert that I am pleased to say Professor Mayer disabused me of the old bubamites that claimed Taklamakan was Uyghur for you can enter, but you cannot get out. <laughs> that factoid, I guess, is a close relative to you could see the Great Wall from outer space without the need of a telescope. There are four major mountain ranges that surround the Tarim Basin. The Tianshan, or Heavenly Mountains, and the Altai in the north, the Kunlun to the south, and the Pamirs to the west. All those tall mountains that rimmed the basin, hogged all the precipitation in the air, and for that reason, the only rain or snow that fell, mostly all fell on the mountains, and rarely ever in the basin itself which is why it's this massive desert. Mountains and basins define Xinjiang geographically. The mountain peaks range from 4,000 meters to the second tallest mountain in the world, K2, at 8,611 meters, located on the Xinjiang-Pakistan border. There were three basins in Xinjiang where the entirety of our story takes place. They are the Tarim, mentioned already, the Turpan, and the Dzungarian basins. You'll be hearing these names in every single episode. You know, there are all kinds of theories, scholarly and conspiratorial, that proffer explanations about how everyone on the earth ended up where they did. And one of the more accepted theories is that after the last ice age ended, about 40, 50,000 years ago, that's when humankind first began to get up, get out, and begin wandering the good earth. I'm sure everyone has heard the term before, Indo-European. Well, that word has been bandied about a lot when discussing prehistoric times. The people who lived back then and their languages, Indo-European, India and Europe. I used to wonder, what did these two places have in common? And English and Hindi? Same linguistic family? Well, as for me, well, someone whose family came from Europe, were Caucasoid, spoke European languages, I'm in this Indo-European group too. The area stretching from Europe to India, it's so vast. It's hard to take in this notion that before everyone spread out all over the world and migrated from place to place, there was this one single Indo-European people who came from somewhere. And that's somewhere is what many of these scientists, professors, and researchers from universities all over the world call the lands of the Proto-Indo-Europeans. And the language they spoke was Proto-Indo-European, the mother of all these languages, such as Spanish, English, Portuguese, Hindi and Urdu, Bengali, Russian, Punjabi, German, Farsi, French, Italian, and Marathi. We all got something in common. Farsi, yes, but Arabic and Hebrew, those were Afro-Asiatic languages. Different branch. All the languages of the Old Testament as well. Everything from about as far south as the Horn of Africa to the southern and 
eastern shores of the Mediterranean, Afro-Asiatic languages. But Indo-European? Hard to believe. What do English speakers have in common linguistically with the people of Maharashtra and northwest India? Well, if you buy into all the uh, theories that have gained the most traction in the world of science, this proto-Indo-European language that existed before recorded history as much as six or 7,000 years ago, from this root language evolved all the different Indo-European languages of the world. And where did these proto-Indo-Europeans come from? Where was that most ancient of all lands where these hunter-gatherers and pastoralists came from? It's widely believed among the academic community that these proto-Indo-Europeans and their language came from that part of the vast Eurasian steppe, north of the Black and Caspian Seas. And from there, they spread out to the north, into the interior of Russia, Siberia and Mongolia, westward to Europe, south and east to India and Tibet, and south towards Iran and into the core of Central Asia. All these ancient peoples that we've heard of and read about in our history classes, the Scythians, the Parthians, Persians, Greeks, Slavs, all of them. These were those people, these proto-Indo-Europeans who gave rise to the Indo-Europeans who branched out all over the Northern Hemisphere, stretching from Lisbon to the Gobi Desert. And these Indo-European people ended up in Xinjiang too. They began settling there, it's thought, around... 4,000 years ago. We know who these people were because the renowned Swedish explorers of the early 20th century, who I mentioned earlier, with the help of local inhabitants, discovered these so-called Bronze and Iron Age Tarim mummies. Perhaps you've heard of them. Tarim mummies, because they all inhabited the Tarim Basin, but only certain parts. They're not mummies in the way King Tut and other entombed Egyptian pharaohs were called. In the words of Victor Mare, they were more desiccated corpses, I guess you could call them. If you place them side by side with the Egyptian mummies in the Cairo Museum, they don't look the same. So far, hundreds of these mummies have been found. But there are seven stars who make up the most well-known group of Tarim mummies, who have revealed secrets kept locked away for millennia. Of these seven mummies... Well, perhaps the best known of them all is the beauty of Lolan, Victor Mayer calls the Marlena Dietrich of the desert. More about the kingdom of Lolan when we look at the individual kingdoms sometime in parts four and five. Lapnor was located midway between the Hushi Corridor and the Tarim Basin. At one time, Lapnor was a huge salt lake, much bigger than the one in Utah. Lapnor well, due to the number of geological factors, dried up and the salt lake became an inhospitable salt marsh. And then in time, well, it became such an inhospitable place that by the time of the 20th century, it actually became a nuclear test site for the PRC. The first atom bomb was detonated there in October 1956 and the first H-bomb in June 1967. Forty-five nuclear bombs were tested around Lapnor, with the last one being in July 1996. The beauty of Lolan is the oldest of these discovered mummies and is dated to about 
1800 BCE, the final years of the mythical Xia Dynasty in China, and the earliest beginnings of the Shang, where recorded Chinese history began with the oracle bone inscriptions. Over 3,800 years ago, late Longshan and early Arlitou cultures in China. As I said, thanks to the way nature preserved her, the beauty of Lolan eh, didn't look too bad when she was discovered in 1980, and she's still in pretty decent shape, all things considered. And when you take her all in, you'll see, despite being found in China, she's neither Mongoloid or East Asian. She's one of these proto-Indo-Europeans I've mentioned. Light hair, fair skin, long noses, deep-set eyes, thin lips, Caucasoid or Europoid, but not necessarily from anywhere near the European continent. Victor Mayer mentioned that she had been given a shellacking to preserve her appearance uh, in the museum, but uh, that uh, this attempt at preservation or enhancement didn't work out too well. From which tribe or nation did the beauty of Lolan belong? These earliest settlers in the easternmost part of the Tarim Basin, they're hard to pin down. There was no pure race that dominated. Victor Mayer said they didn't belong to any one genetic or linguistic stock. As I said, Xinjiang was a crossroads, and people passed through and stayed a while over a period of centuries. Were these earliest inhabitants to settle there proto-Scythians or perhaps proto-Celts or neither? This part of Xinjiang today, so desolate and dry, was once a thriving prehistoric civilization. Most of these towering mummies and the most breathtaking archaeological excavations came from this far eastern portion of the Tarim Basin. Pretty dry today, but 4,000 years ago it wasn't. In this once well-watered land where the beauty of Lolan was discovered, after all the initial tests were ran, scientists believe she was of Indo-European origin and belonged to a group of people known as Tokarians. That she was Caucasian and found this far to the east was the one thing that made this find such a big deal. What were these Caucasian people doing inside what is today China? That's what Victor Mayer wondered when he had his first face-to-face encounter with these mummies in Urumqi back in 1987. So that created quite a lot of excitement in the academic world. We know west of Xinjiang and all those Central Asian nations, they have a healthy mix of Caucasian and East Asian. Second century BCE, we know all about Han-Chinese interaction with these states that surrounded the Tarim Basin. But this far back, two, three thousand years ago, well, Chinese Huaxia civilization was still hugging the Yellow River. Xinjiang was very far away from where Chinese civilization was just starting to form. So, the beauty of Lolan, I mentioned there were seven total. You also have the beauty of Xiaohe. She was found about 120 kilometers west of the beauty of Lolan. Xiaohe means little river. These Xiaohe tombs were first discovered in 1910 by a local inhabitant from that region named Erdek. By the time he stumbled on this site, a fair amount of the graves had already been plundered and looted. And to honor the discoverer of this place, it became known as the Erdik Necropolis. In 1934, this gentleman with that Turkish name, he took the great Swedish explorer, Volke Bergman, 
to see it. This Erdic necropolis doesn't appear to be much from the outside. It ain't no Giza necropolis. It was a big, oval-shaped mound in the desert with 140 wooden stakes of various heights protruding from the mound. Hardly looks spectacular. From the time of Bergman until 2002, nothing much happened. But in that year, a Chinese team of scientists and archaeologists went in and started excavating there. And this team came upon the best preserved and most abundant supply of, well, former residents of the area, shall we say. And one of them was called the beauty of Xiaohe. The dryness of the climate and the salinity of the soil provided the one-two punch that allowed so many of these, well, I'll keep referring to them as mummies rather than desiccated corpses. That's what made this such a spectacular find. You could see their eyelashes even. After these two beauties, there was another incredible discovery. So well preserved, and this was the colorful Churchen man from Chiemo County, west of Lolan. More about Chiemo later. Churchen man was dated to about 3,000 years ago. About 1,000 BCE, it's estimated. He's also referred to as Ur-David. Yeah, he don't look Chinese or Asian, but he had both European and Asian genes. Had he and these other tenants of the Erdic necropolis, had they migrated to this land from Europe? How did they end up here? Besides those three, there was Yingpan Man, the Witches of Subashi, the Shaman of Yanghai, and the Man from Hami with two dozen hats. Each one tells a different story. Yingpan Man, discovered in 1995, well, the main thing about him was his getup. He had to have been quite a man of wealth and taste. It was suggested perhaps he was a Sogdian trader. He was found not too far from Lolan and was actually dated to around the 4th or 5th century CE. And aside from the fact that he was about 6 foot 6, with light brown hair tied in a topknot, he was buried with a, a white death mask, a gold diadem, and a red and gold robe with embroidered pants, fancy gold-colored boots, everything intricately constructed and sewn, his bearded face still preserved. The witches of Subashi were dated from the 4th to 2nd centuries BCE. They were found just east of the city of Turpan. They were interred wearing these tall, pointed black hats, similar to the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Good old Margaret Hamilton. Who can forget her? Actually, these tall, black, pointed witch hats seem to be a popular style with more than just these women found in Subashi. Other cultures as well have the same or similar kinds of headgear. The Shaman of Yanghai was another Caucasoid mummy found in another necropolis west of Turpan. Fair hair and blue eyes, usually a dead giveaway. Snoop Dogg, Tommy Chong, and Bill Maher would have loved this guy. Buried with the Shaman of Yanghai was a nice big stash of cannabis. Sativa strain, if you were wondering. Again, more about Yanghai in part five. And the man from Hami with two dozen hats? He was found 60 miles west of Hami. Hami is on the northeast corner of Xinjiang, bordering Mongolia to the north and Gansu to the east. Famous the world over for their fine-tasting Hami melons. You can get them here in most L.A. grocery stores, but they ain't from Xinjiang. They're grown locally here in SoCal. 
This man with two dozen hats, well, he was dated from about 1000 BCE, early Joe Dynasty. Like his name suggests, he was buried with a lot of hats. And like others found in southeast Xinjiang, his garments were intricately sewn. And like other mummies found in some of these graves, he had some plaid designs woven in his garments that were quite similar to what was found among the Celts in Europe. So you can imagine all the speculation and study that has gone into that possible link. As you start to get closer to the common era, the Tarim mummies discovered were found to be more East Asian and less Indo-European. You know, there's a whole bunch of content on the internet about these Tarim mummies. It's one thing to listen to me ramble on and on, but there are plenty of videos and stories with pictures all over the World Wide Web. Get on the Google and search for Tarim mummies, and then go block out 18 hours and binge on that. By the way, mixed in with all those nice scholarly papers, videos, and documentaries are a few of those tabloid-style archaeology shows that stoke a few myths about the origin and significance of the Tarim mummies that, well, once they're made into a TV documentary, these myths sort of take on a life of their own. There are archaeological sites all over Xinjiang, not just these famous ones I mentioned. I think there are nine Bronze Age sites in Xinjiang that have been excavated. And teams are always out there trying to uncover more of the mysteries of this ancient land. If you're not familiar with Sven Hedin and Volki Bergman, read up on them too. They were explorers and cartographers whose contributions to the understanding of that part of the world are unparalleled. And of course, Victor Mayer has also written extensively and LA's own Elizabeth Whalen Barber. I didn't mention her yet, but she too has made great contributions to the understanding of the Tarim mummies. She's one of the leading experts in archaeology in general and linguistics and prehistoric textiles in particular. I'll have links to Professor Barber's books too, and many others as well. So we'll just cut it short right here and now. You got the main idea, I think. This is as far back as Xinjiang history goes for now anyway. There's still lots to go yet, and the lion's share of the content we'll look at covers the period of the Qing Dynasty. You won't want to miss that. I wouldn't. Don't swipe left on this episode just yet. One last pitch about how you can support the CHP. You have two ways. Patreon.com slash China History Podcast. Pledge three bucks a month and get access to all kinds of material I wouldn't dare upload to this RSS feed, as well as early access to future CHP episodes. If you don't like the Patreon model, that's okay. You can always hit me up at the official CHP PayPal Donation Center at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. Enter any amount, hit enter, I'll personally thank you. This here is Laszlo Montgomery. You've been listening to the China History Podcast going to be 10 years old this June 2020. Can you believe it? If anyone wants to throw a party for me, I'll fly out. Do think about coming back next time for assuredly another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.